The Bonfires of Social Enterprise with Detroit-based Rami Gingrass of Gingrass Global. It's an incredible honor to tell the stories of social entrepreneurs on this podcast platform. I'm so energized by each person and team that I meet. This episode begins a new journey for us as we begin to learn from social entrepreneurs in different countries and different states. We've been busy behind the scenes interviewing and producing. It would be my big grand dream that we can offer this platform to any and every social entrepreneur someday, no matter the location. But right now, we welcome London and the broader UK. I had a chance to interview Cressy Westling of Elvis and Cressy. This amazing couple's been reclaiming and transforming discarded fire hoses into beautiful bags and accessories. They transform the, quote, garbage, unquote, as Cressy shares to the tune of approximately 12 tons per year. And they're just getting started. This is such a great and humble story of a couple that continues to stand on their grandparents' values. I hope this piece leaves you inspired and holding the understanding that anything is possible. Elvis and Cressy is, is a business that started in a very roundabout way. I first moved to the UK in 2004 and I had exited a company that I'd started in, in Hong Kong and I was really looking for a new opportunity. And for me, where I will always look for opportunity is, is with uh, garbage or trash or waste because I am totally fascinated by the idea of it really. I mean, particularly in UK, I thought this was a very civilized country and, and it's not very civilized to landfill things. So that was a disappointment in itself. But I went everywhere in London. I went to the sewers, I went to the waste transfer stations, I went to the landfill sites. And I, you know, met everyone I could that was doing anything with waste. And I had this chance meeting with some guys from the London Fire Brigade. And they told me about their fire hose problem. And I said, well, I've got to see this for myself. Because I had this vision of coiled up white canvas hoses that we would have had in elementary school, um, you know, behind a glass case. And that's not what I discovered. They took me to Croydon, uh, which is in London, which is where all, uh, all good hoses go to, uh, go to die, I suppose. <laughs> and I can't even explain what happened there on that day because it really was love at first sight. We went up to the rooftop in Croydon and there was just stacks and stacks of this coiled up, rich, lustrous, red, uh, absolutely heroic, life-saving hose. And I thought, how is it possible for this to go to landfill? So I decided to take it. And I did take two hoses home and said to Elvis, uh, who's my longtime partner, we've got to fix this. We've got to solve this problem. And he said, what? I've got a job. This one's on you. <laughs> so I started uh, thinking about what we could do with the hose. And what happened over the next couple of years came to define the, the company that we then set up. Essentially, we do everything in a very backward way. So a traditional designer would start with a sketchbook and, and they would draw some sketches and they'd say, okay, I want to make a car or a plane or this or that. And then they'd go out and find the materials to manufacture that good. And we do it in, in the opposite way. We start with a material. We start with a problem material. And then we think about what is the best possible use of that material and what market will solve that problem. Because we didn't really want to take two hoses. We didn't want to rescue 
three hoses or five hoses or fix part of the problem. We knew that it was a 10 ton to 12 ton a year problem. We wanted to solve the whole thing. And that took a lot of research and development time. Uh, initially, we wanted to make roof tiles because we thought, you know, it looks like a bit like terracotta. Um, then we discovered that fire hose, when it's no longer hose, isn't, isn't fireproof anymore. And that it will crack after about 15 years exposure to the sun and the elements. So we knew it, it wouldn't be suitable for that. And basically the research led us down the route of luxury. That's where, when we decided that we would be bag makers and, and accessories makers. And that was quite strange for both of us because we have no background in fashion at all. But it is, it is a solution, a market solution appropriate to the fire hose problem. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. There's so many things I want to ask you about. I first learned about you when Jonathan Jenkins from Social Investment Business came to Detroit, and he and I were having a breakfast and just talking about the nature of investment, and he pulled out a wallet made by you, and and I thought, oh, wow, look at that wallet. That's really beautiful. So he started to tell me the story that's made from a fire hose and about you, and Ever since then, I, I didn't know at the time I'd be doing a podcast, but ever since then, I wanted to, to uh, speak with you on this amazing upcycling that you've done. And then since then, I've gone on your website, and the bags and the wallets are really extraordinary. Thank you. Thank you. I think, I think for us, the big challenge was, I mean, we started this before upcycling was a word. We've, we've always called it reclamation. And I think... I got this kind of value, I got these, these sort of values from my grandmother who would keep all of her old clothes and make quilts from them and, and collect fruit and make jam. You know, uh, our grandparents' generation was not a wasteful one. And, mm. and for us, for Elvis and I, we looked at this beautiful material and thought, it's so strong, it's so durable, it's so beautiful. We have to make something that honors that. And equally, I think, yeah, if you go on the website, what, what you'll notice is that it's, for us, we focus on true transformation of the material. And it wouldn't make sense for us to make something that was low quality or, or sort of a temporary, trendy design. We focus on timeless, classic, high quality pieces. And that's, again, that's to honor the material. And it's also because, you know, fast fashion is killing us. So, so we didn't want to be a part, a part of that. And I hope that I hope that what we do honors the kind of life that that our grandparents led and and the kind of world that we that we want to live in frankly. I love it. It's values driven, near and dear to my heart. <laughs> what will you take us back through starting some of those first designs when you were experimenting? What was your first product that you said, "Okay, this is good to go." Was it a wallet or was it a bag? Oh gosh, no. Uh, wallets, wallet took us five years. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, we started with belts. Uh, I th and I think it's probably quite obvious, you know, hoses are long and straight and belts are long and straight. And, and actually, uh, I'll never forget this, this moment because we had tried so many things and tried making so many things. And then Elvis was wearing, um, a belt, I think that his father gave him and the leather on it split. So it was a, you know, it was a, probably 60 year old belt and, and the leather finally gave way. And, and Elvis thought, Oh, well, I'll, I'll just cut some of the fire hose to replace the, the leather. 
And at the same time, someone called me and said they were doing this amazing event in London and they needed some really amazing green merchandise to sell. And I said, well, I can make fire hose belts. And, 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 and at this point, Elvis was making the first ever one. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, great, you know, we need about a thousand uh, in about three weeks time. Can you do that? And I was like, yes, I'm sure. I'm, I'm positive that we can do that. <laughs> Love that. Uh, so we, so we then set up. I mean, it was just crazy that we spent that first night cutting fire hose with scissors, which I mean killed our hands. So we had to go out and find cutting tools. We had to beef up our cleaning practices. There was a lot of trial by fire that first time. But belts for the first whole year, all we sold were belts because we couldn't then find a manufacturer. We took the hose to so many bag makers in England, and they all said, "Ooh, yuck, I do leather. Go away. <laughs> and we did the same. We had the same problem in Italy, France, Spain, Portugal. You know, the leather craft industry was not interested. Uh, so to, trying to find a, a, a manufacturer to work with us was, was virtually impossible until Elvis learned to sew and started making some rudimentary bags. And then when we went back to some of those same factories, they were like, oh, okay, uh, you know, that's not a very good bag. Of course I can make a better bag than that. So even, you know, most people think their uphill battle is, is sales. Our uphill battle was, you know, finding someone we could pay to make, make the pieces for us. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, that, that was a, pro a problem that we solved. And, and we found an amazing place that, all, that also made products for Chloe and Prada, and it was, it was a great fit for us. Wow, I guess so. Well, you can tell the products are beautiful. So, are you still using that same uh, producer? Uh, no, that's that's another that's another story. About five years into the business, um, we got a call from that factory, and and uh, you know we we'd sort of seen them through the worst days of the recession. We'd paid them early lots of times so they could pay their staff, and and we got this horrible phone call where they said, "Gosh, um, a large." luxury company has just bought all our capacity for the next two years so you're out oh. and uh yeah it was terrible it was like it was like a breakup or something and <laughs> right. Elvis had to go out to the factory and they literally stopped making bags halfway like some bags were half finished and they just stopped wow and at that point into we, we we then set up our own factory in Istanbul and that was so even though um setting up that factory came out of a crisis. It was definitely the best thing that we could have ever done because uh, having our own space uh, with our own guys is incredible. It's the best way to ensure that everyone's being paid well, everyone's being treated well, uh, it, that you can really control the quality and that you have flexibility through your production timing and schedule and all of that. And also Istanbul is just an awesome, awesome town. Yeah, that's fair. I hear we hear a lot uh, from the Detroit area as the Detroit area is trying to sort of um, become more of a garment district in some of the areas. We're trying to repurpose some of the old auto manufacturing into uh, cutting, sewing, and uh, that all went away for us many years ago. Yeah, and. And so that same thing, there was not a cutting and sewing labor pool here. And so a lot, there's a lot of connections 
to where your your production facility is. We hear yeah. a lot of great things about that there, and there's a lot of conversations going back and forth. <laughs> Who yeah. knows? Maybe you'll set up another uh, satellite here in uh, Detroit. I have to say, I I would love that because. We know that there are hoses for us to reclaim in the U.S. We've been approached by some of the biggest brigades, and it just wouldn't make sense to ship American hose to Europe. We've always wanted to have production hubs. Um, and although I'm Canadian, <laughs> um, I, did, uh, I did spend some time in... Like, I remember I spent a day and a half in Detroit when I was probably probably 12 or 13 years old and it had a really strong impact on me visually I can really it was also 42 degrees or something ridiculous it was one of these heat wave summers but I remember it and I love listening to all of these incredible stories of entrepreneurs who are uh, and, and specifically social entrepreneurs who are who are in Detroit now trying to rescue a city and it I, I mean how impressive are are these people I just, I think it must have the most amazing atmosphere there. It does, it does. But it's following the lead of people like you, Cressy, who have, who have kind of gone forth and pioneered a way to do things that's different. It's, I find the whole global world of all of us connected in some way are all inspiring each other. Yeah. So do you have any customers that are buying from the U.S.? Yeah, loads. Uh, absolutely loads. And actually, um, we're going to be spending quite a bit of time in the U.S. in the next couple of months because we are doing, um, in addition to Firehose, we've started a leather reclamation project. And the, the, for our first big customer for the leather is an American company that has 33 stores across the U.S., and I know that if that starts to sell really well into the U.S., I'm going to want to start producing there for sure, um, just because it, it, it would make sense to be closer to that market. It would, it would make sense to be producing there. Um, I mean, we have a, a factory. In, we have two factories, one in Istanbul and one with us here in Kent. And I like the idea that we could be a global company but yet local, Yes. I like the idea that everywhere that we, that we had people who appreciated our style and our design, we could be somehow embedded in those uh, locations. Because everywhere you go, you learn something. Everywhere you go, you meet more cool people and get to try new, different, interesting things. And, and yeah, I, I, uh, I've spent a lot, of, a lot of years in Europe now. This is uh, year 11, I think. So maybe it might be fun to be in North America for a while again. <laughs> well, we would welcome you. I, I'm definitely going to talk to you offline about that, <laughs> see what we can do there to facilitate that. So I, one of the things I'm so curious about is, is this volume of material. And you said there's about 10 to 12 tons. Does that run out or is that replenished? I mean, do you have a consistent uh, set of resources there, or? Yeah, it's 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 actually quite consistent unless you get a really bad year, um, and then it goes up. And 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 it's because fire hose, just like a bike tire, there are some holes that you can patch up and some that you can't. And you can imagine if there's a hole in the middle of a 22 meter hose, that's the average length of a hose. Uh, they then then they can't really make use of two short hoses. So it means the whole hose is scrapped. And 
and and is useless as a fire hose, but fantastic for bags, belts, and wallets. Because I don't, I you know, there's not very many people that need a 22 meter long belt, you know. So <laughs> so I don't mind the I don't mind the shorter length. Right. So what did, if I keep going back, because I'm just trying in my mind to get the whole history. So I want to pick back up where you finally found someone to manufacture your idea and you had the raw materials. How was it embraced locally for you? What was that conversation like early on? Because once you're successful, everybody praises and they become your fan club. But in those early stages, sometimes you can get the crazy look like, Oh, I don't know. I'll just watch you from afar. Were you yeah. well received initially? I think it depended on the audience. Certain, you know, some of our friends were quite skeptical, but skeptical but supportive. Uh, and family would be the same. I think they worried for us because they thought, "Gosh, this is mental. What you guys are doing. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah. This is, you know, you're. It's not like you're telling us you're setting up a business. You're telling us you're going to make luxury." products, heritage products from, from garbage. Really? Is that really what you're going to do? Um, and it's sort of, it's sort of, that stayed around for a while, but we then found lots of people who just thought it was just wacky enough to make a good press story. And I think the biggest hook certainly with the press was something that we never really did for that reason. But when we first started collecting the hose on that first day that I, that I met the fireman, I said, look, hey, if I make anything out of this, I'm going to give you guys half the money. And they, they laughed because they thought, we'll, we'll never see this woman again. Um, but we are now, I think we've, we, were, we were told this a couple of weeks ago, that we are the, the, the most consistent corporate donor to the firefighters charity because every year we give 50% of the profits from the fire hose range to the firefighters charity. And, and, and people love that. They think that, you know, that really completes the circular loop of our story. And, and, and the press here, as much as they do in the U.S., love firemen. I mean, who, who doesn't love firemen? Right. And we love working with the charity. We love working with the fire brigade. So I think in the, in the beginning, just that, that promise that we made, that commitment, people thought it was so outlandish that we were going to save the hose and, and, and give half the, the money away that they thought, well, this is worth a purchase or two. And actually that's how we financed our first range. So the first year we just made belts and we wanted to then make a collection, a small capsule collection of four pieces. Um, there was a wash bag, a card holder, a satchel and a tote bag. And we financed that by making one tote bag, which I then took all over London, showing all kinds of people, anyone who would listen. And I said, look, if you, if you pre-buy this, uh, I'll give you a 30% discount. And we sold enough at that 30% discount before we ever made anything to finance our first run. And then the first run sold out really by that Christmas time. And, and we've been financed purely by cash flow and sales ever since. Wow, that's so powerful. I didn't know that you were giving away part of your profits. I think now that you said that, I do remember reading that on your site somewhere. It does complete the full circle. And then how smart of you. I'm always talking about crowdfunding yourself and your best investor as a customer or yeah. a purchaser. It's so, so sustainable to do it that way. Now, and it's been that way ever since for you, you just said, right? 
Yeah, and it also comes down to, you know, when you talk to some some big companies, they just see customers as, you know, they always want to say, we get approached by companies all the time, and they say, who's your customer? What do they like? What do they shop? When do they buy your products? And we're kind of like, well, our customer are people who, who sort of want the world to be better. They want us to do more and be better. And that's our internal mantra. And I think they're people who want the same. They want to do more and be better. I don't really think of them as customers. I think of, of people who share our values and, and are on the same journey as us. And if they're going to have to hold up their jeans in some way, then they're going to use one of our belts to do it. <laughs> and, and I think it's, that's the relationship that we have with people who come on our website and who buy from us. My mobile number is on the website. People call all the time. And they're shocked when I answer them, and I just think, why? I want to talk to you. If you, want, if you have something to tell me about what we do, tell me. If, if, if there's something that you don't think is right, tell me. We'll fix it. Uh, and I, I kind of wish that the business world was less impersonal. And I think that's also why we give money away, because we don't see money as, as an objective. It's kind of, uh, I don't know if this is as big a product in the U.S. as it is in, in my life growing up in Canada, but we see money as WD-40. <laughs> we see it as the, the grease and the wheels, and it's, it's the way that you get to do more interesting things. It's not an end in and of itself, and, and, and I think that's the kind of customer we also have. There are people who, who will buy from us because it's going to last a long time, a very guaranteed product, you know, we'll repair or replace anything. And that's the kind of products they want to buy. They want to be a part of something. They don't want to just have a bag. Boy, you're speaking my language. My sister and I have this saying, she always says, money's a neutral, you know, and as I think about that times we, in the U.S., definitely there's, it's, can be money driven and yeah. as if that's the end all game, as if that's where some of the power comes from and fear comes from when you don't lose it, when you don't have it. And yeah. I think that when there is an abundance sometimes of only the many, I have witnessed over, you know, 26 years in business that sometimes our creativity diminishes or is reduced because we're not looking for multiple uses of certain resources. I mean, I think about how the light bulb was invented. It wasn't because it was really bright out all the time. It was because it got dark and somebody got creative and yeah. was persistent about it. So I just, I really love what you just said. You're hitting on one of my hallmarks that it's not, it's moneyism is one of the things. We don't live in a trade uh, system right now, a bartering. We do need currency, but it's only one of the things that make a business flow. Yeah. And, and if it was the only thing, then you'd never get good staff. You'd never have an amazing relationship with your colleagues. You'd never have um, fun in the work that you did. It, if, it, if it was purely to do one thing, and there are companies that are run that way, and I can tell you the culture in those companies absolutely sucks. Yes. And, nobody, and nobody's happy. And and we all know we've all read the studies. They're they're very very prominent. It's it's not where happiness comes from either. You know, happiness comes from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It comes from you've got your bases covered, and then you get a little bit of a cherry on top when you get to do something you love. And every single day that we run this business, Elvis and I are very aware that we have that, and that 
The privilege isn't running a business. The privilege isn't a successful business. The privilege is that we get to do something we enjoy and we get to do it together. I really am proud of that because it is difficult for us to run a business together and to be a couple in life together. But at the same time, there isn't anyone in the world that I love or respect more. And why would I spend all my time and all my energy with someone else? I think if people could bring their love of their life into their work more, maybe we'd be working on better projects in a more passionate way. I don't know. I believe that. <laughs> I believe that. Plus, you know, it it becomes a little bit of sacred ground. You know, you don't want want that to be the place you go and toil all day and and you go home. You want no. you tend to work harder to make that a good environment. Crusty, if you could, I don't know, sort of dream big for me, your truth of the moment, as you are thinking about it today, what would a really big dream for Elvis and Crusty look like? Well, there is an imperative for us to, to grow, and it is it comes from the volumes of material that, that we in modern societies neglect. And for Elvis and I, it's about finding ways for our ideas to be spread and shared much, 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 much more widely. So we, we know that we can solve London's fire hose problem ourselves. We need help and we need to grow to solve the world's fire hose problem. We know that there might be 10 tons of fire hose waste, but then the leather problem that we've started to tackle, there's 35,000 tons of leather waste in Europe produced every year of a, of a very high quality. And we need to grow to fix that problem. And we need partners and collaborators and we need them quick because, you know, if we want to have a, an impact on fixing the problems that we're facing in the world, we can't just wait to grow our business over the next 150 years. We need to grow it and share it and give some of it away and pass some of these ideas on and make it much, much broader and bolder, much, much faster. And we're trying to work out how to do that. Right. I'm with you. I want to say amen. <laughs> yeah, that's, that'd be powerful. How do any potential partners or customers reach you? Well, my mobile number is on the website. Um, so our website is uh, elvisandcressy.com and you, know, you can email me cressy at elvisandcressy.com or my mobile number. And yeah, we are... Uh, we, we are probably this year at the moment we're involved in six major collaborations and there's just room for more there's room for a lot more so uh, looking, looking forward to hearing from all of you thank you so much Cressy the Bonfires of Social Enterprise podcast can be downloaded from iTunes listened to on TuneIn and for more information and to directly download episodes on your desktop please visit bonfiresofsocialenterprise.com and find us on Twitter at Bonfires Podcast and Facebook, Bonfires of Social Enterprise. If you have time, please fill out the survey that we have on the website. It'll help us do what all social enterprises need to do, which is gather data from our listeners so that we can be better servants. I'm Rami, and I want to personally thank you for listening and sharing. Music by Dan Castle and Thomas Rojo. 
Portions of this podcast have been provided by Rami Jingress and are copywritten 2015 Jingress Global LLC and are disseminated by Flatlands Avenue Productions by exclusive arrangement with Jingress Global LLC.